0: Welcome to AgTech360, where we take a 360 degree view into emerging agriculture technologies of today and tomorrow. Our host, Adrian Percy, helps us to create robust dialogue among stakeholders in academia, industry, and extension, including researchers, growers, producers, and the overall agriculture sustainability community. AgTech360 is brought to you by North Carolina State University, CERSA, the Center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, and the Southern IPM Center.
1: This is Adrian Percy with AgTech360, and I'm in Palo Alto, California with Spencer Morn. And Spencer has a couple of interesting roles. He is a venture capitalist with a venture capital fund called Finister Ventures. He's also a CEO of a very interesting company that we're going to talk about which is hfg or high fidelity genetics but first welcome spencer thanks for your time would love to hear a little bit about your background tell me a little bit about yourself and and how you got to where you are today thanks adrian it's good
2: to be here with you um yes we 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 have softer vowels in the room today Um, so i i'm originally from australia I started out life as a scientist, so really, really different uh, background to a lot of at least venture capitalists uh, in the valley who uh, dominate sort of the tech scene out here. And I, I was really interested in plants from an early age. So I actually did my PhD in classical genetics at the University of Melbourne, focused on how roots respond to drought and abiotic stress. So, for a long time, I was a scientist. I mean, you know, it's all relative, of course. It ended up being about 15 years. After my PhD, I I moved to the UK and was at Cambridge for about six years, leading a small group there, studying uh, again how plant roots grow in some respects how they respond to the stresses like i had been doing during my phd and then on a weird side project i was uh, running a project uh, sort of an international project on malaria resistance to chloroquine oddly enough malaria parasites swallowed a chloroplast at some point so it has a lot of plant genes so uh, we, w- we were looking at that and during that time You know, I realized that one of the drivers for me was really trying to have impact. You know, there was the thrill of discovery and these other things, but at the end of the day, I think it was the impact of it, or at least the hope of impact at the back end. And I got more interested in that when we had, or my group, I should say, had found what the purpose was in the cell of a specific gene and protein that ultimately was responsible for chloroquine resistance and we were developing a whole suite of drugs on the back of that you know this idea that maybe at some point it would be commercialized so I got more and more interested in that and I realized look I think the time frames of commercializing science actually line up with my personality more than a lab scientist so I made a big switch and I came out to California to study yet again and did a business degree and during that time I was actually headhunted by the Rockefeller family's early stage investment arm called Venrock. So it was one of the founding four firms in the valley. In 1969, Venrock and Kleiner Perkins and some others came together and funded Intel as the first modern-day venture capital deal. So they had a long history in the valley and they're what's called a generalist investor. So they invest essentially in, in anything as long as technology was at its core. They didn't focus on a particular market or a particular business model or a particular technology. So I got good exposure to, you know, a lot of different technologies as well as a lot of different people in the valley, which then led me from there to look at a, a, a sort of a different stage of investing. So I had started out on the early stage side. And I moved to a firm called Kleiner Perkins to work with the Green Growth Team, which was a much later stage fund, so a much bigger fund. It was headed up by a few people, including Al Gore, the um, vice president, ex-vice president of the U.S., and we were really focused on trying to make investments in the sustainability sector and as part of that they were exploring ag tech and they wanted someone sort of with a a background in in ag and since i had done a lot of work with Bayer back in the days when when i was an academic and obviously had still sort of funded a few companies in the plant sciences sector that was a good fit so we looked at a bunch of evolving technology deals they did the Farmers Edge investment actually up in Canada uh, while I was working alongside that team. And while I was at Kleiner, I did uh, two things. I, I co-founded a company, uh, High Fidelity Genetics, which is based in North Carolina, which we can talk more about, yeah. and uh, and also co-founded the Finistere uh, Ag Tech Fund, which we also had an association with you and your group at, at Bayer Crop Science through that investment. And that was a... Instead of a generalist fund, it was a very, very focused sort of boutique fund, which was only investing into agricultural technologies. Whether that was inputs or production, it didn't really matter. And we were technology agnostic, but we focused on that. And so that's really
1: what I've been doing most of my time, uh, you know, is, is operating that fund. So, yeah, I mean, a lifelong learner, obviously worked in a lot of different areas. And one thing you didn't mention, because I know you well, is you also have a very creative side and I bring that up because what's interesting to me, you know, when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who are working in the tech sector, whether it's in agriculture or other sectors, they often have this kind of creative bent. So I don't know if if that's a prerequisite, but it's certainly something I see very common with people who are involved in, in companies that have scientific roots and tech backgrounds. And, and maybe you don't see that so much sometimes with, with scientists, you know, working in the larger industrial companies.
2: Yeah, that that could be true. I mean, there's this incrementalism versus a step change and, you know, venture capital and entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley is all based on a step change. And I think to have that, there's a degree of creativity because you're either focused on a new product or redefining a market in some new way. And so to be able to visualize that, I think, and come up with a way creatively to build stepping stones to get there but rapidly uh, is something that probably helps to at least enjoy creativity. But obviously, creativity can be exposed in lots of different ways, not just through fine art. And I was yeah very, very engaged in fine art originally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, interesting as well, you started off by saying some sort of your early studies was around roots and, and root structure. And, and, you know, without trying to kind of spoil the surprise here, I mean, HFG has a lot of focus on what's going on below the ground. And that's something perhaps, uh, you know, in general in agriculture, something that's been a little bit neglected in past times. And and I've heard people kind of throw out anecdotes that we know more about the dust that's on the surface of the moon than perhaps the soil that we're growing our crops in. Huh. Uh, I don't know if that's truly accurate because there is an awful lot of research going around in soul Health right now. But maybe tell us a little bit about the premise of HFG and, um, you know, how it got started, who it got started with, and what, what you guys are working on right now.
2: Right. Yes. I think that, you know, first off the comment ab- about what's going on below ground um, is, is, it's cheeky obviously, but it's, it is a good one too, in terms of just what knowledge is known. And a big part of that, I think, and we'll come back to this in a minute is just how you can interrogate you know, the ground is a bottleneck for discovery. But I co-founded High Fidelity Genetics with Philip Benfie, who is a professor at Duke University in North Carolina. Philip was one of the original sort of guys to define key developmental stages in root development. So at first, you know, characterizing how lateral roots, you know, the roots that come off the main root, so to speak, develop, you know, what, when they get triggered, what that looks like and then different phases of that growth. And then he moves sort of from a, a descriptive sort of approach to it to building new tools and in some ways that brings in a lot of creativity to find the key regulators or genes that really drove pattern in roots. So he is a member of the National Academy and a really, really deep thinker about root development, root growth. He had had a previous company, actually, also in North Carolina, which was Grassroots Biotechnology, which Monsanto had bought. And that was using yet another tool set that he had developed around both driving expression of genes, so switching on genes and switching off genes, as well as growing roots and being able to visualize them in a lab setting. And I think through that experience, he and I got to know each other because I sort of talked to him a lot about his company as he was building that and we met after he had sold that just to chat about the space of ag tech and we realized both of us thought field-based breeding systems for root optimization had been underdeveloped and was an opportunity and it was also a bottleneck from his previous company where he had great ability to grow roots and visualize them and track genes and all sorts of cool stuff it didn't translate very well to the field and so we thought is there a true opportunity in you know broadacre crop plants and the company chose to look at corn first to develop technologies that can assay live roots over time in normal field growing conditions and be able to take that data and then use it to optimize plants so essentially what breeders have done you know for the last hundred years have been able to walk rows of corn in this instance and you know in a notebook or tablet or whatever be able to make data sets about different attributes of that plant leaf angle height number of you know kernels in a cob all these sorts of metrics could we develop something that can ultimately do that in the ground that isn't destructive that would Um, do it over the growing season. So the
1: famous shovelomics which is a a title I love to hear but but basically as you said I mean previously you'd have to dig up the plant to really understand what was going on and there was no real way to track in real time how a plant's root system was developing.
2: That's right. And that was a huge, huge issue because obviously it's destructive. You lose that plant, you can't do a time series and these things are often dynamic, right? And then, you know, the the, the other approaches in the field, like a Rhizotron and some of these other machines are quite good. They provide very rich data sets, but they're very expensive. Um, and so breeding and genetics ultimately is a game of numbers. So it's very, very hard to... Uh, use those at a scale where you could use that in a breeding regime so we developed something called the root tracker which is a sensor device that rings the plant in the ground and so a root grows down through the middle of it and all of the other roots that then come off that or additional roots from the plant are all detected as they grow so you get an idea of sort of growth rate root angle root density all the sort of metrics that you would want to be able to build a 3D architecture of the group. And, you know, it's a very affordable device and it's really proven to be quite powerful. So we already have deployed well over 5,000 of these in the field and have, you could imagine, this is over, you know, a month or a couple of months at a time taking data points every 15 minutes. So it's,
1: you know, reasonably large. I wouldn't say it's big data, but it's large data. So this isn't just about... I mean, this is about increasing yields by building stronger plants with better root systems, but I imagine it's also about protecting the harvest and, and, and building root systems which are resistant to droughts and other, other climatic conditions, or perhaps even, you know, high acidity or High uh, salt in the, in the soil, is that, is that correct? Yeah, and there's simple things,
2: so to speak, from an agronomic point of view to identify, like emergence. So when the corn plant germinates and you get the plant growing, that first growth phase of when it emerges from the soil is really important in terms of ultimate yield. So the faster that can get out and get established, uh, the better it is. Essentially, you're taking away risk of things happening while it's trying to get situated and planted. And that's a really nice, easy, tractable thing to look at. But still, within that one trait as well as all the things you were talking about in terms of resilience to drought and all these other things, they rely on a multitude of genes, you know, anywhere from hundreds to thousands, which in genetics is referred to as a complex trait. And a simple trait is, you know, the classical resistance where it's a single gene, you change it, it's now resistant to fungus X. That requires a huge amount of data to be able to find all of the nuanced contributions that each of those genetic factors make in overcoming one of those insults like drought. And so what you need is not only large numbers so that you can statistically refine those genetic loci of importance, but also you need large, you know, field-based data sets to be able to look at the outcomes of those individuals as you set up your breeding regime. So that's what this has given more than anything, is the ability to start to tackle complex traits in a computational way because it's objective data, it's at a relevant scale, and you can feed that into then you know predictive algorithms to try to you know find and optimize plants that are requiring a multitude of genes to be
1: optimized, so to speak. So I'm I'm curious about HFG's kind of place in the world of, in the seed world. I mean, as you build this seed company, seed breeding company, we've just gone through a lot of uh, consolidation within the ag industry, within the seed business. There was concerns that you know having these very large seed companies might stifle innovation, might lead to monopolies. But clearly there is innovation going on in the seed business. But how do you see a relatively small company like HFG competing against some of the big multinationals out there? What is your place in the world?
2: Yes. And it's a complex world out there, especially when you look at something like seed. The benefit on genetics, on seed and traits is that it's probably the largest bucket of consolidated value across the chain from an import point of view. And so it's it's a rich target zone from just cash flow point of view. But you're right, there's been a lot of consolidation. Still in the US, if we look at genetically engineered corn, 80% plus of that market is on a very small set of firms too. And so it, it's complex to try to figure out how you would like to enter a market but it's certainly our belief and i think one of the hallmarks of the best venture-backed companies is that while they might have a platform or a set of different platform technologies ultimately they're trying to prove that out in the marketplace by becoming a product company on the back of those platforms. And so High Fidelity's always had that in our DNA, so to speak, that we wanted to be a product company and really monetize all of this computational capability and the innovative hardware we have to create optimized genomes which we can sell i.e., seed. And where we've started out is on the non-genetically modified corn markets, which surprisingly, at least it was surprising to me, given all that you hear about it being, you know, the corn market dominated by two different companies, is that it is quite fragmented. About 60% of the market is made up of 1%, 2% sort of market share companies. So it's actually a very different looking market than other seed markets. And it's quite large. I mean, as a starting market, it's sort of 500 to $600 million in the US alone. So we started commercial activity uh, last year, selling our first corn seed to US farmers. And this year, we continue to sell and expand the catalog. Our intention is to every year, obviously, bring in new and better products and keep selling into that stream for the foreseeable future.
1: Congratulations on that, making so much progress. I mean, one of the things I'd like to talk a little bit about is location. You mentioned that HFG is based in North Carolina. I know you're in a very hip area of Durham. I say hip with a relative term because I'm not hip, but it, it seems a very hipster place. Um, very young team, uh, very excited team, very motivated. Tell me a little bit about you know why North Carolina, apart from the obvious connection with Duke and Phil Benfey, why have you set up operations there?
2: So North Carolina is a very interesting place from a startup point of view, especially for ag tech, actually. There is first and foremost, a really good tertiary education setup. There's a number of universities, of which obviously NC State is one, that produces top notch research and therefore is training you know, their students in best in class approaches right from a science and engineering point of view. And since High Fidelity is an early stage company, and obviously uh, when we were getting it going, it was an even younger company, that was of primary importance was access to talent raw engineering and science talent. The other interesting thing about North Carolina is it has a very long-standing ag market in itself, both around people and training as well as companies in the space. It had Bayer's North American headquarters. Monsanto had an installation um, in North Carolina in the RTP area. You had Syngenta's headquarters there. BASF had a big operation. So all of the sort of major ag tech companies had some sort of interest in the area. And so that gave you not only then people being trained in engineering and science within a plant and ag chemical context, but then you had market relevance by these big ag sure. companies there, which meant that there was an added layer of talent and understanding and access when you're trying to grow a small company. That was really important and I think probably the main driver yeah. of Are there. Of are there areas
1: like that North Carolina could be better at, I mean, in terms of access to certain types of talent? Uh, for instance. Yes.
2: So our feeling and experience has been it's harder to find people on the data science side, and I'm I'm not sure if that's a training issue. I think it might well more be a market issue that there's such a pull for data science out in California and areas of Texas and you know Seattle that you see a lot of people wanting to go to those places when they and graduate. And you're also
1: competing in state with the gaming industry and right. other, other, other right. areas that may have it. Liverpool.
2: Yeah. So I'd just say there's a bottleneck and I don't know if that's, you know, needs a large macro shift of saying we need more big, big companies that need data scientists or, or if there's, you know, just an increase in the number of graduates right with that capability. That's probably been the biggest the biggest issue for us.
1: Thanks, Spencer. I just have one more question, which is basically kind of taking a more holistic view of, of everything that's going on in our industry, in the ag tech sector, in the ecosystem. I mean, what For you is really exciting right now, you know, looking from taking a kind of bird's eye view. uh, What kind of technologies? What kind of developments? You know, where do you see things kind of moving forward in the next five to 10 years?
2: So my two favourites, one is on the supply chain with consumers. There's a massive shift in consumer preference in the US, as well as other Western, I'd say, countries, in terms of what that consumer sees as safe food. Sometimes lines up with science and other times it lines up with trend, but it is super dynamic and it's accelerating. So you have all these things like Beyond Meat and, and other groups coming through and seeing huge success with this consumer base But I think ultimately, whether that's backed up by regulatory and pesticide residue, all these sorts of things, or if it is simply from the point of view of changing inputs into that stream, means that all the way through the chain, there's going to be at least the supply chain side of things, opportunity for new companies to pop up that can scale or take care of some of these issues that are perceived by the consumer to a better degree than the current supply chain. And I think that touches on innovation providers on the input production side of agriculture, but then all the way through the sort of commodity food chain of supply. So that's one area. And then the other one that I'm excited about is on discovery platforms for new chemistry. We've had some success. It's still growing, I think, and some needs to be proven, but on the biologic side, maybe there's something to do on the natural products side as as an offshoot from that. But ultimately, I still believe in chemistry, right? I I think that not only do you have a good cost basis, but it's a hugely powerful tool for mitigating all sorts of problems that humanity faces. And, you know, it doesn't just have to be chemistry to kill stuff. It could be chemistry to help plants, in this case, respond better, right, to an environmental insult or something so that we can make sure we have supply in the food supply chain. So I think that that's been sort of neglected in the rush towards biologics and other things, and I think new platforms to really find new chemistry is, is a big opportunity.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's really refreshing to hear you say that because I know – there's been so much excitement and investment in biologicals of various different shapes and forms and chemistry in a way has been seen as, as something kind of passe and, and out of date. And of course there is pushback, as you say, from a regulatory, from a societal perspective. But what we also have to acknowledge is, as you very well pointed out, is the power of, of chemistry to kill you know, to kill things but also to, to protect plants, to, to to help them thrive in a way that we haven't yet seen for a lot of biologicals. And so until those biological are really there and are doing the job that we need them to do, there's going to be certainly a place for chemistry, and we need, as you say, new types of chemistry, safer versions of what we've had in the past, cheaper versions, if possible, versions that overcome resistance in the field to you know pests and diseases and weeds. It's great to hear you say that, especially yeah. since I'm an old chemistry guy.
2: Oh, that's true. I, 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 only a small amount pander into you. Really, I do <laughs> believe this is a massive opportunity and something that's probably been underfunded, even from a venture point of view. While a lot of money's gone to crop protection, it has not been towards traditional chemistry platforms and reinvigorating them.
1: Yeah. So, Spencer, a thousand thanks for your time. Good luck with everything you're doing, HFG, Finisterre, and all that creative stuff you do on the side. Thanks very much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate the conversation.
0: AgTech360 is a product of North Carolina State University, CIRSA, the Center of Excellence for Regulatory Science in Agriculture, and the Southern IPM Center. This episode was produced by Kayla Pack Watson, with host Adrian Percy and Center Director Dr. Danasha Seth Carley. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at AgTech360, and send us questions and comments to agtech360 at gmail.com. With AgTech360, we take a 360 degree view inside emerging agriculture technologies that matter. Thanks for listening.